morning again. Okay, it's very Romans Christmas. We are going through the book of... Ian told me I have to like talk on two times speed, so... Um, We've been going through the book of Romans for a while now. We're carrying that right through Advent all the way to Christmas. I am still, even whatever happens this morning, trying to finish the book of Romans by the end of January, and then we'll come up for air, okay? Um, Question. When we think of Christmas, when we think of the sort of American culture of Hallmark movies and all of that sort of thing, what is it that's supposed to be so magical about the Christmas season? What? Falling in love? Santa? Oh, took yours. Go ahead, Caroline. Jesus' birthday? Christmas is supposed to be a time of unity and peace and togetherness, a time of family, a time where we set aside all of our petty differences and live together in peace and love and harmony. And that's why all those Hallmark movies, they're about falling in love. They're also often about the reconciliation of estranged family members, healing of old hurts, that sort of thing, right? So it's totally appropriate for today because we're turning to Romans 14. And Romans 14 is about judging one another. It's about the things that threaten our unity and our peace. What are some of the little things in your life that aren't even moral issues, but you judge people for them as though they're moral issues? We all have things like that, right? One of my favorite things to do is when I'm driving down the road to judge everybody who's going faster than me for being a reckless jerk, everybody who's going slower than me for being a really inconsiderate jerk because people have places to go and places to be. I am always the standard of righteousness on the road, period. Anybody like that? No, not you. (laughs) Seth copped to it. He's the only one. It's me and Seth. I'm sure that's true. Nobody else has that problem. Um, We do this sort of thing all the time. We do it with Christmas all the time. We take these little things, these matters of preference, these matters of opinion, and, we, and matters of conscience, we take them and we elevate them to levels of some kind of moral issue, some kind of uh, matter of right and wrong and truth, or superiority and inferiority. Uh, we do that with Christmas decorations. Oh, I see that you've chosen to use white lights for your Christmas decorations. So you must be the sort of person that likes cold, austere, heartless, joyless, Christmas celebrations. I, for one, prefer warmth and happiness. That's why I use colored lights. Oh, I see that you like blue Christmas lights. I can understand how one might be so tasteless. Nostalgia, maybe. But I prefer a classy Christmas. That's why I use white lights. Did you guys know that the Conrads have inflatables in their front yard? They do. What do you think about that? One of them shivers in the cold. Well, that's just hilarious and fun, like Christmas, because we love Christmas and a happy Christmas. Bring out the inflatables. 
oh, you decorate for Christmas? You actually celebrate Christmas? Well, Christmas lives in my heart all the year round. I don't need to de- decorate for Christmas to celebrate Christmas. Okay, Ebenezer Scrooge. It's all this sort of thing, right? And so now that I've offended absolutely everybody, I hope, just by talking about hypothetical judgments about our Christmas decorations, we understand that this is the sort of thing we do all over the place in our lives, right? We take these little things, matters of opinion, matters of judgment, matters of preference, and we, we, we use them to gauge our superiority to other people. And we make that moral. We make it a moral issue. Okay? So Romans 14 has something to say about that. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Just going to stop and let that sit for a minute. <clears throat> while the weak person eats only vegetables. Not the, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Okay, so now throughout this passage, he's contrasting the weak and the strong. And the real basic distinction between the two is this. The weak are people who, because of their tender conscience, can't enjoy the fullness of the freedom that we have in Jesus for one reason or another, or at least in certain areas of their lives, okay? The strong are those who can't. So the reason we're talking about meat here in this passage is because vegetarians are just weak. I didn't say it. The Bible said it. (laughs) Don't judge me for saying what the Bible says. No, here's the way that it worked in the old world, okay? The local temple was more or less also the local butcher shop, okay? To take a life of any kind... It was a sacred sacrificial act. So it had religious significance and was ritualized in every culture. Okay? But if you're living in a pagan culture, who's the butcher? The pagan temple is the, cult, is the butcher. And so all the meat that you could eat would be meat that would have been sacrificed to idols. Meat that would have been sacrificed to pagan demon gods. And so you have these people across the world that are coming to faith in the repenting of their sins and the repenting of their pagan demon idol worship. And suddenly, because for them, every time they ate meat, it was an act of religious worship to their demon gods. They don't see how they can continue to be Christians and still eat that meat. They've got a problem. Does that make sense? It was a religious act. I don't know how to separate the two. And everyone sees it that way. And so my friends who I've said, I'm not a worshiper of Dionysus anymore. I'm a worshiper of Jesus. If they see me go to the temple and eat the meat, they're going to think I'm a hypocrite. My heart participated in it that way previously. It might still seduce me. I, want to st- I have to stay far from that. I still have to pay for it with money. So my desire to eat meat means my money goes to the pagan temple and all that's involved in it, including the sex cult of the pagan temples, which was a big part of the pagan temples. So so I'm supporting prostitution. 
by buying meat. How can I do that? There's no way to separate myself from this and keep my hands clean. It's a moral issue any way I can think about it. So I, I feel like I can't eat meat. That connects to Paul saying, pay your taxes, right? People didn't want to pay their taxes because they felt it was ungodly to support the Roman Empire. So Paul had to write and say, no, actually, you should pay your taxes. When it comes to meat, Paul had to write about that too. And in the New Testament, his, content, his consistent teaching is actually this. The idols are nothing. God made all food, food, food good. God made all food good. If you tried to keep your hands perfectly clean, you'd have to go out of this world. There's no way to do it. So you can eat the meat. It's okay, as long as you do it by faith. There's that much freedom and grace in Jesus. We have faith. You can eat the meat. It's okay, because we have to live in this world. But you can see the problems it caused, right? I hope you can, because they're not that different from the problems we face today. Right? Can you shop at Target? Can you shop at Starbucks or Apple or Nike? Can you pay taxes once you learn that your tax dollars go to support Planned Parenthood? Your tax dollars go to underwrite the murder of children. Can you do those things? Why or why not? Well, you might say, well, Jake, it's not one-to-one with meat in the New Testament because... In America, we have a little bit more opportunity to exercise choice and discretion about who we support. Pagan temples were the only place to get meat. We have options. We can choose good options. We can choose bad options when it comes to where we get our clothes or our groceries or our shoes or our coffee or anything like that. Okay. There's some truth to that, some fairness to that. You you choose where your dollars go and what your dollars support. But if we pulled on the, all of the threads, are we going to find that we can keep our hands clean? And there are places, ways to prevent all our money from going to evil things? This is not, it's not possible. It's not possible. Should we try? I don't know. Should we? It's a good question. How hard should we try? Or should we just accept that it's hard to live in a fallen world and we each need to live by faith with the freedom that our own consciences afford without judging one another in matters of opinion? Opinion. God's word here. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats despise Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Why? Because with most things, what does God think is most important? Is it your personal judgment about the righteousness of where you buy your clothes or your food? or the relationships you have with brothers and sisters in Christ. Even talking about these things poses a risk of straying into judgment, right? Why? Well, which is better, to be strong or to be weak? You've made a judgment already. And there's sort of almost an implicit judgment in the text, right? There is. 
But is it morally wrong to be weak in certain places? It's not. It's not morally wrong to be weak. We're all, each of us, actually pretty weak in certain areas of our lives. There are places where we can walk right up to the line of the freedom we have in Christ and have no issue and no problem whatsoever. And there are other places where we can't. How about an example? This example will be later in next week's passage, okay? But I'm going to bring it into this one. How about alcohol? For some of us, alcohol is not much of a problem, not a big deal. Drunkenness isn't that appealing. We're not alcoholics. Can enjoy a drink with a friend, no problem. No big deal. For others, it's a problem, a real problem. It's a place where we're weak. Can't get too close to that line. If we do, we might have a problem because of our own personal weakness or sins or temptations or past or history or whatever the case is. So even a thimble full of wine on a communion Sunday, it's better to avoid that. Better to draw a line. Is it a sin to be weak with respect to alcohol? No. No, it's not. Drunkenness is the sin, not weakness. Knowing where you have to draw your lines and then drawing them because of your weakness is strength of itself. It takes a certain kind of strength to acknowledge your weakness and draw your lines. Saying, I know God's line is over there. I know that a glass of wine is not a sin in and of itself, but for my own soul, the line has to be here. That's not a sin. That's not being a Pharisee. That's simply acknowledging your own personal weakness. Being a Pharisee is saying, my line is over here, and so yours should be too. I've made a judgment, and now I hold everybody else to my standard rather than God's standard. That's being a legalist and a Pharisee. Now, who's the Pharisee in the scenario? Is it the weak or the strong? It's the weak. It's always the weak. In the church, it's often the weak who turn into the oppressors of other people's consciences. Sometimes the weakest people end up with the strongest opinions and the loudest voices. That person who has a strong moral judgment about everything, even matters of opinion and conscience, what he's telling you or she's telling you is that actually I'm very, very weak and I have very weak faith. And I find it really hard to believe and trust in the grace of God for myself and other people and to embrace and accept the freedom that I have in Christ. And even saying that can make somebody who's weak tense up. What am I saying? Am I saying I don't care about holiness? It's not what I'm saying. I care about God's standard, not your personal standard. And there's a difference. And that's something we have to acknowledge. So here's what happens. Someone has a very tender conscience. Maybe that's the way they just, their personality was as a child. Or maybe that's how they were raised or how they were treated or maybe a number of other things have happened. But because of that tender conscience, they have a lot of trouble coming to terms with the freedom and beauty of God's grace in their lives. But they really love God and they really do want to serve him. And God is holy and his standard is perfection. They need to figure out what perfection is and looks like so they start to make rules for their lives. They create hedges and boundaries. They become conscientious about absolutely everything. They don't want to mess up. 
And then they can't understand why other people don't exercise the same level of conscientiousness that they do. Or rather, why other people have the ability to enjoy a real sense of freedom and strength where they don't. But that's not how they frame it. Because their hyperactive conscience gets equated in their own minds with the holiness of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. I know God created all things for good, but we're also to bear with the weaknesses of others. We'll talk about that more next week. Some people are weak when it comes to alcohol. So even though on the one hand there's freedom to drink alcohol, it's always, almost always unkind and uncharitable to do so. So the best and most loving thing is to ignore the fact that God says it's okay and create my own law in place of God's law and condemn anyone who would, for any reason, exercise that freedom. And we'll talk next week about bearing with one another's weaknesses and not parading our liberty, okay? And abstaining from things for the sake of other people, even though we feel the freedom to engage in them ourselves. Okay, but there's a difference. What starts, though, for many people as an earnest attempt to be just godly becomes a self-righteous sort of judgmentalism. If God wanted alcohol to be against the law, he'd have made a law. It would be a lot simpler if he had. And there are lots of things in our lives that way. But if he had made a law, then we wouldn't have pressure to learn how to live with one another in love and real unity. And that's what he actually cares most about. That we learn to live in love and unity and peace over small things, and that we learn to have wisdom and discretion to, uh, to discern between what's primary and what's secondary, what's most important and what's least important. Okay, so it's the weak. How about the strong? The weak person isn't the only one guilty of being judgmental, right? Judgmentalism works both ways, because the person who feels absolute freedom in Christ to enjoy a glass of wine or whatever it is, what are they tempted to do with the person who has to draw their line and avoid it? Scripture says, Paul says here, don't despise those who are weak. The temptation is to despise those who are weak. Look down on them for being weak. Look down on them for not fully grasping or having the freedom in Christ to go farther than their own personal lines. And so what do the strong tend to do? They tend to play fast and loose with the lines and to blur them and to justify worldliness and sinful behavior in the name of their strength without any sort of love or care or concern for those around them who are in fact weak and just need to be loved. And the truth is, we're all weak and strong in different areas. We all have places where we're weak. We all have places where we're strong. If we dwelt on it long enough, we could find some place where each of us in this room is strong and where each of us is weak. And those places don't even stay the same. They can change over time. What was once an issue for me early in my Christian life doesn't have to be an issue for the rest of my life. You can see this happening in the New Testament church. Once my life was so closely associated with the temple and all that sort of thing, I had to abstain from me. But I grew and I grew and I grew. And now, you know what? It's not a big deal to go get some meat at the temple. That sort of thing can happen with any number of places in our lives. They don't have to change. And things can happen where we go from being strong in one area to being suddenly weak. Right? 
alcohol was no big deal to me. And so I felt a lot of freedom until it became a crutch. And now, it's best for me to just abstain. Things can move as we seek to exercise faith. Ultimately, many things in our lives come down to matters of opinion and personal conscience. And here's the reality. God has been absolutely clear about many, many things in his word. Many things. About who he is, about what he's done, about who we should be. Are there more gods than one? No. There's only one God. How are we saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Jesus alone. Clear, right? What's the only perfect standard of what we're to believe and how we're to live? Scripture, period, clear. What do you guys think? Is murder okay? Adultery? Stealing? Clear, right? Clear. Absolutely clear. How about, our, how about our obligation to love one another? To love our brothers and sisters in Christ, even the ones we disagree with? Clear? Clear. Better be clear. We're to love even our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Right? We better love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Downstream of that, is a world of places where we have to exercise judgment and wisdom and discernment, where we have freedom to form our own opinions and to disagree with one another. And in those places, what's the rule? The rule is love. Those places exist as a test of our love. And what we need to say is, if God is good with us, if God is good with them, we ought to be good with each other. If God has welcomed them, we welcome them. That's what the passage says. We don't divide except where God divides. And where God divides, we must divide. But if God has welcomed them, we welcome them. And here's where a lot of churches go wrong. And this is where we could go wrong. Because every pastor has a lot of convictions. Every pastor has a lot of opinions. I know that from experience. I got a lot of opinions about a lot of things. I once attempted to author two new books of the Bible, first and second opinions. Nobody wanted to read them. I try to keep my opinions when they're opinions out of the pulpit, or at least let you know they're opinions, right? Sometimes I fail, but what happens? Over time, churches tend to form around the cult of their pastor instead of Jesus. And so the pastor's opinions become our opinions. And our opinions become law. And the standard by which anyone may come and be a part of our fellowship is now measured not by God's word, but by our opinions. You have to jump through our hoops. So what do we do when that happens? What's actually happening? We're exchanging unity for uniformity. We're exchanging peace for conformity. Uniformity is easy. It makes everything really easy. If we all just believe all the same things about absolutely everything and all our opinions line up, it makes everything easy. We just exclude anyone who's different. Throw up the walls. Unity's hard. Unity means actually bearing with one another in love. 
Now, on the one hand, it's natural for the church to follow after its pastor, right? But on the other hand, we have to be careful that we're following our pastors as they follow Jesus. And that we create plenty of space for people who are just learning to follow Jesus and don't share all our strengths and weaknesses. Over time, as we've seen and already talked about this morning earlier, our strengths and weaknesses as a church will become more and more apparent. Okay? We're going to have them, both. By God's grace, we're going to work and pray that we have a diverse range of leaders so that we have a lot of strengths and ability to cover each other's weaknesses. But we'll still have our strengths and weaknesses as a church. Okay? Regardless, my hope and prayer is that this church never become a place where our strengths and weaknesses become barriers that exclude us from locking arms with genuine brothers and sisters who are different when it comes to matters of opinion. And at the same time, it's my hope and prayer that we never become the kind of church where we lock arms with those who are simply not brothers and sisters because they deny what are not matters of opinions, but matters of truth. Okay, for that to happen, we have to constantly be committed to holding tightly the truths of Scripture that are clear and just as importantly, holding loosely the parts of Scripture that are not as clear or places where we are free to differ and have matters of opinion and judgment so that we have the freedom and grace to live in real unity rather than uniformity and to be patient with one another. Because listen, how many of you, how many of your convictions right now at this moment in time did you instantly have the moment you became a Christian? We've all changed. Your answer better be pretty different unless you became a believer like 10 seconds ago, right? Because otherwise it means you're just not growing. When we first come to faith, we need God and we need other people to be patient with us. We don't understand everything right away. And it can be intimidating going to a Bible study and not knowing where a book in the Bible is or how to pray when someone tells, calls on us to pray. And it can be intimidating showing up to Bible study or prayer group or Sunday morning and hear people singing around theological terms that are all brand new to us. And when we're new to the faith, it can be really hard to discern between what God says and what somebody else's opinion is. It can be really hard to know the difference. And we need to be patient and help guide people with open hands and a lot of grace and help them know the difference between God says and we say. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Here's the point. God's going to judge us all. So in matters of opinion, we don't need each other's judgment. and We don't need to be judging one another. God's going to judge us all. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who are you? 
One person esteems one day is better than another, while another person esteems all days alike, talking about feast days and holidays and things like that. Some people don't think it's okay to celebrate Christmas. Did you know that? It's true. Because it's not an appointed holiday in the Bible. So every Sunday's alike. And some people are like, I don't know, it's good to celebrate Christmas. It's pretty helpful to set aside some time each year to meditate on the birth of Jesus. And it turns out God's pretty gracious and understanding and open-handed about that sort of thing. And he says, when it comes to matters of opinion and judgment, just be convinced in your own mind and live by faith. If you eat, give thanks and honor to God. If you abstain, honor God in your abstaining and give thanks. If you celebrate Christmas, eat your fudge and open your presents to the glory of God. And if you don't, abstain to the glory of God and treat every day as Christmas in your heart. And we'll just call you Ebenezer Scrooge. It's okay. Be careful. Legalism is real. And the more seriously we take the Bible, the more likely we are to form opinions. And the more likely those opinions are to become convictions. And the more they be, our opinions become convictions, the more we'll be tempted to take ourselves and our opinions way too seriously. And that's a problem. The problem, again, of the Pharisee or the legalist is that he takes himself way too seriously. And it makes him really tightly wound to the point that if you poke fun at his opinions, he gets super offended. And do you know why that is? You know people like that, right? Do you know why that is? It's because he's stopped being able to distinguish between himself and God. Between his conscience and God. He's put himself in God's place without ever realizing that's what he's done. And that means, actually, he stopped taking God seriously because he takes himself and his opinions way too seriously. So to threaten one of the Pharisees' opinions is to threaten his God, which is not God, it's him. He's lost the ability to distinguish Scripture from opinion, and that's why Jesus was so scandalous to the Pharisees and so hard on them because they were leading the people. And so Pharisees looked at Jesus and they said, here comes this dude, he's eating and he's drinking, he doesn't respect any of the lines and barriers that we've set up. He's a glutton, he's a, dr- a glutton, he's a drunkard. He has no respect for the law. And Jesus was like, no, you're the ones who have no respect for the law because you've lost sight of it. You've lost the heart of it. It's all about your opinions and your lines and you've lost the plot. You're worried about the outside of the cup. God cares about the heart. And that's what this passage is about. It's about how God looks at and judges the heart when it's matters of conscience or opinion. Those are matters of the heart before God, and we don't get to judge. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Okay, we're all living our lives. I hope we're doing our best to live them to the Lord. We're all gonna die. We're all gonna face judgment. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And Christ is Lord of the living and the dead, and he's the one who stands in judgment, not us. So, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. 
So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? What brothers do you pass judgment on? Why do you despise your brother? The weak judge the strong, the strong despise the weak. Who do you despise? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Nobody deserves to be judged before the appointed time. Nobody. We all have our own accounts to give. And it's not going to be the account of our brothers or sisters. And it won't be our brothers and sisters who are judging us. It's going to be us and God, period. And here's what he's saying. You had better be a little more concerned about how you're going to be judged on that day than about judging your brother now. Because we'll be judged by the standard that we hold others to. And here's the scary thing. We all each have enough sin of our own. We all have enough weight to carry and enough weakness to go around. We don't need to be judged by anybody else's standards, so we don't need to judge anybody else. We just need Jesus and more grace. And that means we need to extend a lot of grace to our brothers and sisters, because otherwise, what are we doing? Aren't so many of our judgments just distractions that keep us with dealing with ourselves and dealing with our own hearts before God? Not saying we're not to make judgments at all ever, period, right? Jesus said if, you, uh, if you're going to take a speck out of your brother's eye, you better take the log out of your own eye first. And then you'll see clearly to go take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't make judgments, right? He's just saying better see clearly, better look to yourself first. point isn't that we wouldn't make judgments, but that we would judge rightly and fairly that we'd have wisdom and grace to distinguish between matters of truth and righteousness and matters of opinion. Love makes judgments, but love makes judgments about the right things. Okay? And so here's the truth. I don't know about you. When I consider my soul and my sin, your opinions aren't that big of a deal. They don't matter that much. Things become kind of clear at that point. And if I'm running around looking for reasons to judge people, maybe it's not because I'm so loving. Maybe it's because I'm just too weak to look at myself soberly in the mirror. So here's what he says. Remember that one day this is all over. We all give an account to Jesus. So before you get worked up about unimportant secondary things and people's opinions, be humble. Watch yourself. If you're a person of strong opinions and you seek to impose your opinions on other people, it means you're weak in the faith. That's what it means. That's what it means. You might be tempted to think that means that qualifies you for some kind of leadership. It means you're disqualified. And if you're big and strong and able to hold matters of opinion loosely and you think it qualifies you for leadership but you despise the weak, you're wrong. You're wrong. Leaders need faith and love and patience and hope and humility across the board. So it's Christmas. Remember Jesus who made himself weak in order to make us strong. 
and who came to bear with us in our weakness because we have a lot of it, each of us. And remember that he carries us. He is the good shepherd who carries us. And it's good to step back and remember that at Christmas. Yesterday, I was preparing for the hour and a half long family meeting we had. I tried, guys. Um, I was struggling with this thing. And I started doing what I often do, which is I take out my little prayer journal and I start to write and pray. And at some point, I did something I don't often do, which is I flipped all the way back to July. I read through the last six months. And what I saw were all the ways that God has carried me over the last six months. There's no weakness of ours Jesus can't sympathize with or relate to. There's no temptation we face that he hasn't faced. There's no place where we're weak where he can't either strengthen us or be strong for us. So put down your opinions, hold fast to what's important, and love one another. And pray that God builds us as a church that's united in the truth. Church of unity and not uniformity. Full of the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. It depends on our good shepherd to carry us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this church and for your kindness to us. We do pray that you would give us love and tenderness and patience for one another. And that we would, each of us, be rightly able to discern the places where we are strong and where we're weak, where we're tempted to judge and where we're tempted to despise. And those things in our lives that we have elevated far beyond matters of opinion. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.